This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Tuesday. We're doing endocrinology questions today. Daphne, how are you? Doing good, buddy. <laughs> All right. Um, I guess I'm next, and I need to uh, prepare the following question, which will be question four. Oh, short... I got an easy question. <laughs> yeah, it's a short one. How does gestational mm-hmm. diabetes impact a women's health? Um, choice A, increased likelihood of developing metabolic syndrome. Choice B, increased risk of pregnancy-related hypertension. It's not that easy. Choice C, significantly increases the lifetime risk of developing diabetes mellitus. Choice D is all of the above. And choice E, which, come on, Dr. Brodsky, none of the above added. Gestational diabetes is a benign, self-limited condition. Right. Well, snotty. Snotty. The E is there um, to tell you that if you pick it, you, you need more time. You need, you gotta, need to you go. You got to think about. It. You got to study a little bit longer. Um, I mean, A is obviously correct. The development of metabolic syndrome. You know, I wasn't really sure. Pregnancy related hypertension. I mean, I, I do think you know it's related to preeclampsia, um, but this term pregnancy related hypertension, I'm not. I I don't know, but. I do know that it significantly increases lifetime risk of developing diabetes mellitus. And actually, I think that's the one that would trip people up the most. Um, people think, oh, it's just gestational, it goes away after pregnancy, but it doesn't. Um, so if it's at least two out of three, then it's all of the above. D. Correcto. I think that's how we say correct in Spanish. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Uh, I have a story that I can tell you a little joke about that. Um, okay. All right. So gestational diabetes affects 2% of pregnant women. It may be controlled by uh, changes in maternal diet or may require therapy with insulin or other medications. The effect of maternal diabetes on the fetus are well known and include congenital heart disease, renal anomalies, caudal regression, um, neural tube defects, central nervous system anomalies, and small left colon. As we mentioned yesterday on the, the previous question, recent evidence has demonstrated long-term effects of gestational diabetes on the mother, notably a significant increase in the risk of diabetes with some estimates as high as 50% of those affected developing diabetes within 20 years of pregnancy. Women with a history of gestational diabetes are also at risk of cardiovascular disease, obesity, and metabolic syndrome. In addition, these women are at increased risk of pregnancy-induced hypertension, although this relationship is not clearly understood. The story that I wanted to tell you was that oh. in 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 France, and when we live in France, we we especially in the south, we go back and forth with Italy a lot, and the language is very similar because it's both Latin. So sometimes, if you don't know how to say something in French, you try to you put just... like an O, an O at the end, and uh, yeah. And so my dad one day at uh, at a at a on the highway at a booth asked for like a receipt for the the pavement that he made at the at the toll booth, and he said like. <laughs> uh, Kind of like he's like a ticket, ticketo or something like that. And, yeah, and the guy was like speaking fluent French. He's like, yeah, I just want to receive, right? <laughs> <laughs> and this was, uh, yeah, notoriously uh, a funny story in my family. So that's, uh, yeah, 
All right. Okay. So that, I did like that story very much. So <laughs> it's like how I went to Italy and was just hoping I came by with my Spanish, but I could not. <laughs> my Spanish. Um, okay. This question, I know you're going to get this question right because no pressure. Once you get it wrong once, you never get it wrong again. <laughs> no, Wait, I and I think the most common answer to trip you up is not even on this list. Anyways, that's a hint. Uh, question five. A full-term male infant has prolonged indirect hyperbilirubinemia, a large posterior fontanelle, hypotonia, and feeding difficulties. And you're like, I know the answer. He has hypothyroidism. The, ne <laughs> the neonatal fellow suspects that the infant has congenital hypothyroidism. So what's the question? Dang it. Lab that's not the question. <laughs> that's not the question. Laboratory evaluation reveals a low thyroxine concentration and an elevated thyroid stimulating hormone. The most likely cause for this infant's hypothyroidism is a diiodase. I think it's missing a good letter. Diiodase deficiency, B, organification defect, C, panhypopituitarism, D, thyroid dysgenesis, or E, thyroid stimulating hormone resistance. Yeah, this is missing. This is missing a few letters. That's right. <laughs> um, okay. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. When we're talking about um, the um, when we're talking about congenital hypo hypothyroidism, you um, you have to know which one is the most common. And I remember that I think it's like eighty percent is thyroid dysgenesis, mm -hmm. uh, which is in this case, where is that choice? D, right? Um, then there's um, penhypopit. There's uh, thyroid stimulating hormone resistance, but they're asking for the most likely. Mm -hmm. And um, and I don't. I have zero mother's history too on this question. So like, I I, I don't know if there's anything uh, that in the mother could put the baby at risk of something a little bit more uh, tricky. Maybe like um, something like could there have been um, um, antibodies, something, but I don't know. I have no history on the mother. So I'm going to go with thyroid dysgenesis. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, yes, the answer is thyroid dysgenesis. I mean, you know, it wasn't panhypopit because you have TSH. Could it be TSH hormone resistance? Maybe, but you know that the most common is, is right. thyroid dysgenesis. I think what it trips people up a lot, sometimes they add thyroid agenesis as Ooh. an answer choice. And that's the one I always pick. I always pick thyroid agenesis, but it's thyroid dysgenesis as an umbrella term. Congenital hypothyroidism can present, as in the story stem, prolonged jaundice, a large posterior fontanelle, umbilical hernia, macroglossia, hoarse cry, abdominal distension, hypotonia, feeding difficulties, lethargy, mottled skin, hypothermia, and goiter. Long-term consequences, of course, include delayed growth, cognitive deficits, and delayed puberty. The most common etiology of congenital hypothyroidism is thyroid dysgenesis. This occurs in 75% of the cases. So this results from partial or complete absence of the thyroid gland. So like thyroid agenesis is like part of the umbrella mm -hmm. term. Thyroid dyshormonogenesis occurs in 10% of infants with congenital hypothyroidism and leads to inadequate thyroid hormone production. It can be caused by a number of things, thyroid stimulating hormone resistance, defects in iodide transport, thyroglobulin abnormality, diiodidase deficiency, or an organification defect. 
And defects in the hypothalamic pituitary axis, like panhypopit, are much less common, occurring in less than 5% of individuals affected by congenital hypothyroidism. And obviously, it's associated with other hormone deficiencies, panhypopit. Neonatal hypothyroidism can also be caused by transient hypothyroidism, uh, about 10%, which is attributable to maternal medications, maternal antibodies, or neonatal iodine exposure. Preterm infants commonly also have transient hypothyroxinemia of prematurity of unknown etiology, but this may be related to an immature hypothalamic pituitary axis. And the term SICU thyroid presents as temporarily low thyroid hormone levels with normal thyroid stimulating hormone in the setting of an acute or chronic illness. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that um, is what you brought up in the beginning regarding thyroid agenesis. Mm-hmm. I think um, people need to know that they're sort of they're very similar in the process. Yeah. The thyroid doesn't really form, but you're still more likely to have a remnant of right. some thyroid tissue somewhere rather than have zero of it altogether. So I think that's where it gets super confusing because thyroid dysgenesis and agenesis are basically the same process, except that in thyroid dysgenesis, you have a little bit of tissue somewhere. And sometimes it's not even in the proper location, So, which, which means you have to do these fancy scans to try to find out like where is that little tissue uh, uh, remnant, sometimes right in the mouth or um, a little bit higher up. But anyway, um, yeah, that was, that was a good question. Thank you. I didn't write it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm going to take a bit of water. Uh, Daphna endocrinology, question six. Oh, man. A one-week-old full-term infant has an intraparenchymal cerebral hemorrhage. Urine output is 10 ml per kilo per hour. I dislike SIADH and diabetes (laughs) insipidus questions so much. Laboratory evaluation reveals a sodium of 158, which is abnormal. A potassium. <laughs> Got it. Nailed it. <laughs> a potassium of 4.1, a chloride of 118, a bicarb of 30 MEQ per liter. The serum and urine osmolality of 310 milliosmol for the serum mm. and 125 milliosmol for the urine. Upon administration, of exogenous vasopressin, parentheses, antidiuretic hormone. The most likely impact on this infant's osmolality is... All right, so the choices are... Choice Mm. A, a decrease in both the serum and the urine osmolality. B, a decrease in serum osmolality and an increase in the urine osmolality. C, an increase in both. D, an increase in the serum but a decrease in the urine osmolality. And choice E, no change. Hmm. That's not such a bad question, actually. All right. No, you kind of just have to walk it through. Mm-hmm. And I did think it was tricky because this baby has uh, intracerebral hemorrhage, right? So you're like, so what could be happening here? I usually favor SIADH for intracerebral hemorrhage, but that's not what this baby has. This baby has the opposite mm-hmm. <laughs> SIADH because um, uh, there's hyperosmolar serum and hypo not enough os- osmoles in the in the urine since the serum sodium is so high and then they kindly gave us the serum and urine osmolalities uh, for um, comparison 
So this is a DI. Um, the baby's getting rid of, rid of extra free water. Um, I guess central because it's they told us about the cerebral hemorrhage. So giving still answered the question. I still have to answer the question. So giving <laughs> ADH would be a therapy that might help you yep. um, in this situation. I mean, and the goal then would be, I guess, to it would be to decrease the serum osmolality and increase in urine osmolality so you can better balance the electrolytes. So I guess B would be my That's answer. correct. That is correct. So <clears throat> um, uh, the answer starts by doing exactly what you did, which is analyzing the patient, making sure that we have the proper pathology. This starts by talking about the fact that um, the baby in this vignette has neuro has likely neurogenic or central diabetes insipidus caused by a decrease in antidiuretic hormone pro- production as a result of his intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, other intracranial lesions, such as tumors, AV malformations, um, can also lead to central DI. About 10% of cases, though, are idiopathic, so you may not get that sort of extra little bit of information to point you in that direction. Um, The inadequate ADH production causes free water loss from the kidney, resulting in hypernatremia, an increase in serum osmolality, and an inappropriate dilute urine. Uh, Treatment with exogenous ADH will lead to a decrease in the serum osmolality and an increase in the urine osmolality. I tend to think of ADH, vasopressin, as sort of your walking through the desert um, hormone, right? You need to to hold on to all the water that you can. And so so water will stay. Thankfully, it's a hormone that does exactly what it says it does. That it's the anti-diuretic hormone. So you don't diurese. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. And, and so that's, uh, that's, that's actually one of the good things that, yeah, that's actually spelled out this way. Um, but now when you contrast this to central diabetes insipidus, um, individuals affected by nephrogenic diabetes insipidus have an inadequate renal response to ADH. And similar to central DI, the disease is associated with increased serum serum osmolality and decreased urine osmolality. However, serum ADH levels are normal or elevated. And after administration of uh, exogenous ADH, then serum and urine osmolalities are not altered. And I think that's the key because the kidney is sort of being resistant to your ADH. So um, there are scenarios in which choice E would have been correct, and that is the case of um, central, uh, of nephrogenic uh, DI. Yeah. Okay. All right, buddy. See you tomorrow. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.